if there is, um, I don't know, a fourth or fifth song for you to, psalm for you to memorize after like Psalm 23 and Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, um, you, you have your favorite. Psalm 103 does cover a lot of territory. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's not a misprint when it says bless. Bless is a verb that doesn't mean give somebody something they don't have. It's a verb that means to say something, to bless. It's a verbal action. When God speaks, creation happens. You have all your blessings from God's mouth, from what he's done for you. But when we bless God, it is the word that we say and praise and adoration. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good tidings so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are merely dust. And as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, he is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and on his righteousness and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you, his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you, his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. If we went in Psalm 103 and took a line in a, in a, a journal, get you a little sewn notebook or a journal or something, composition book, and just put one line at the top of each page and then brainstorm for the day what categories of theology are specified or mentioned as you understand biblical systematic theology, what categories of biblical doctrine are being addressed. And um, a couple of things will happen. You'll spend more time on that than you might think. And as you grow spiritually and you come to know God's word better, uh, you'll fill up that notebook more. But um, angelology is addressed, the Mosaic law is addressed, the God's covenants with his covenant people is addressed. Um, just so many doctrines are surfaced there and all undergirded with this statement about God's provision. Uh, but God's provision is hand in hand with God's character and his righteousness and his loving kindness um, is the, the agency that delivers, that character is what delivers the faithfulness and the blessing and the provision. Let's take a moment for silent prayer as we open God's word tonight. 
Uh, we will be in the book of Acts for most of our evening. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, tonight we have set this time apart to knowing you on your terms. We praise you for the wisdom that you've given us to do so. Father, this night, this time, is an investment that we've chosen to make for more wisdom. We ask you to give it to us. We know you lavish it on us abundantly, and we are so needy and so, so foolish and so clueless, and yet here we have had the momentary wisdom to be here, to think after you, your thoughts, to know you on your terms, to become more and more desiring what you desire. Father, align us to your character as we've continually prayed already tonight, as we think through who you are and what you've said. In Jesus' name, amen. Where are we in the book of Isaiah? We are in the little apocalypse of Isaiah 24 through 27. What are we doing in the little apocalypse? We are focusing for this few weeks on the Old Testament doctrine of the resurrection. We're looking at the resurrection in the Old Testament. And the reason is because in Isaiah 26, 19, they will say that this is the only clear and undisputed reference to the resurrection in the Old Testament. Some will say this. And so it's a pretty important verse, as we saw last time, for this category of doctrine. Our purpose in this study, as you can refer to your notes, and they're growing slowly, as you can see, and our purpose in this, you're still under Roman numeral one, is to understand what the Old Testament actually says about the resurrection and how there is a consistent message from the Old to the New Testament on what God is going to do with the Christ, what the Christ's resurrection will mean for the saints. For example, in Isaiah 26, 19, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits, to the Rephaim, as we've seen. And uh, as far as English Bible translations go, they don't really get much better than that one. So the question that we're asking under Roman numeral one with your notes on the biblical doctrine of the resurrection in the Old Testament, the Old Testament doctrine of resurrection, should we res- expect resurrection to be taught in the Old Testament in anywhere else, Isaiah 26, 19, or otherwise? And you know the answer from last time is absolutely yes. And that the follow-on is if the Old Testament is messianic. And since the Old Testament is nothing but messianic, looking forward to the promised deliverer, the promised Messiah, since the whole of Scripture is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, we expect the resurrection to be taught in the Old Testament. And I want you to hang on to that idea of messianic. We use that adjective a lot in our day in evangelicalism. What if I told you, uh, let's think about the concept of messianic Christology. Let's think about that phrase messianic Christology. It's a phrase people will use today. I wouldn't want to have a a book with my name on that, messianic Christology. Because that's like saying you're being sanctified for a holy purpose. The word sanctified comes from the word hagiadzo, and the word holy comes from hagias. And it's the same thing. You're being made holy for a holy purpose. You're being sanctified for a sanctified purpose. Messiah is the English version of Mashiach, which is Hebrew, and we translate that as the anointed one, and Christos is the Greek for that same concept, the anointed one. And so messianic Christology is messianic messianism or Christological Christology, 
it's the same thing. But when we say messianic, what, what that means in the culture today is Jewish people who have trusted in the Messiah, in Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason I introduced this little sponge activity, this little thought picture for you of messianic Christology, is that the entirety of Scripture, the Old and New Testaments, are pointing to Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. A good grounding in the Hebrew Scriptures is the perfect preparation for the coming of the Savior. Paul teaches this in many ways. Uh, one profound way is that it kills you. The letter kills. The Mosaic law gets you good and toasted in the lake of fire for being sinful. And the Christ is the only solution to our sin. And that's what the law does. The law kills you and Christ saves you. And for example, the, the, the perfect way to prepare mankind for the coming Savior is the Old Testament, including the promise of resurrection. And so the way the rationale is going, we started last time with the places where Jesus teaches resurrection by implication. And we'll visit this at the end of the study a little bit more emphatically, but I just want to remind you, we're not going to read the passages again, but I want to remind you that the way Jesus says you have to know that there is a resurrection taught in the Old Testament, you Sadducees who deny the resurrection and angels and the Spirit, you Sadducees need to understand as he's teaching them in Matthew 22 and Luke 20, that if God is the God of the living and he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then there has to be the resurrection of the patriarchs. And the way we can apply that to ourselves is that the people that belong to God and can say he's our God, they all have to be resurrected because he's the God of the living. And it's, it's, it's such a central, compelling implication. Again, Jesus teaches us to do systematic theology when he says it this way in Matthew 22 and Luke 20. We saw the wonderful story of the stranger on the road to Emmaus where Jesus said, this is of course what you would expect that Messiah would suffer and then be glorified. The Old Testament is messianic and the, the path of Messiah is the suffering and then the resurrection and then the rule. And that was to be expected if you're watching the Old Testament closely. And tonight, I want to focus on Paul's preaching in Acts 26, and we'll get, if we get to Acts 13, we will, what the Old Testament expected concerning Christ. If you're going to be faithful to the New Testament, then you have to have certain convictions about what the Old Testament teaches. And so we're, in a little way, we're kind of reading spark notes. We used to call them cliff notes. The companies have argued and, and somebody won. You're, you're reading the summary when the New Testament writers, when Luke summarizes Paul's teaching, you're reading the summary of what we should have gotten from the Old Testament when Paul summarizes. And we're going to read that summary. And it's a very helpful thing to do. But understand the, the design. I don't think that I read the Old Testament better than the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus Christ or Luke on the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, or the New Testament writers. But I also don't think that I have a new way to interpret the Old Testament because of the new. I think that the old is given as God said it, and then the new grows out of it. And there's one way to interpret as the power of language functions just as it should. So to get to Paul's preaching in Acts 26, we have to do something that is marvelous, it is very highly enjoyable, and it is very rarely done. We have to walk together as quickly as we can handle it from Acts chapter 22, 
through Acts chapter 26 and tell the story of Paul's being seized in Jerusalem and held to be tried, ultimately sent to Rome. We won't get to Rome tonight because we don't need to. We need to get to Paul's defense in Acts 26. But I think to do that, we really need to start in Acts 21. So why don't we do that? Why don't we go on the ship, getting just in to Caesarea of uh, Maritima on the, on the Mediterranean coast, the, the port closest to Jerusalem, as Paul is headed through Philip's house with his prophetess daughters to, um, to Jerusalem to report to the elders in Jerusalem, including James, the brother of our Savior. And we will pick it up in Acts, uh, again, 21. Now, how would you find Acts chapter 21? That's not A-X-E, okay? That's not, I used to think that, that Paul was killed by the Roman lictor, either a sword or an axe. And Acts and the letter to the Romans, I, that's how my brain did when I was a little kid. Acts was an axe. And then I learned several decades later that it was an, it, no, I, I learned later that it was the acts of the Holy Spirit actually through the apostles, turns out. You're in Acts chapter 21 and you would go to almost the end of your Bible and then you would roll back to about, I don't know, a, a twelfth of it, somewhere like that. That's where Acts 21 is in my Bible. So we're assuming a lot by way of context to get to Acts 21, but we'll do that. And let's tell the story. We're going for Paul's appeal before Agrippa and Festus in Acts 26, but we need to know what's happening to understand the conversation. And it's very profound. Let me summarize my summary. The Old Testament is messianic and anticipates the resurrection of Christ and therefore the resurrection of the saints. And Paul is constantly appealing that the resurrection of the Messiah has happened. And that's the only reason I have anything to say in the wide world. And this is at the end of his third journey. So Paul is seized in Jerusalem in Acts 21. He goes to Jerusalem and the Christian leadership there tells him to join the four Nazarites that are there uh, in a vow and, and pay their, their due, pay their, their, their fees. And he's seized at the conclusion of his Nazarite vow in the temple and beaten. And he falls into the Roman authorities' hands. And they let him speak to the Jewish crowd when he requests it, since they find out that he's not a rabble-rouser as they had thought, because he's being accused of all kinds of things by the Jews. And we have the, one of the strongest appeals by the Apostle Paul in Acts, in Acts 22, verses 1 through 21. He publicly appeals to the men of Jerusalem, to the crowd. And this is an interesting thing. This is not to the Sanhedrin, some of the Sanhedrin's present, but it's not to them. It's to the, to the rank and file of the mob in Jerusalem. And the point of his message in Acts 22, verses 1 through 21, is his eyewitness testimony that he met Messiah on the road to Damascus. I met him, and he flipped me. That's his message in Acts 22. And so much of it is what he encountered when he encountered the risen Christ. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, verse 3 of 22, of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, this city, educated in Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And I persecuted this way, that's the Christians, to death, blinding and putting both men and women into prison. Binding, sorry. Blinding, that'd be a little violent, but binding and putting men and women into prison. 
Also the high priests and all the council of the elders can testify. For them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Notice the way his testimony of the resurrection of Christ works. Everybody who's accusing me within the leadership knows that not too long ago, I was their, uh, their, their, uh, their pit bull hunting down and persecuting these Christians. They know me. They know that I was the best man for the job being a zealous Pharisee. But verse 6 tells you that he had something happen to him. So this is his testimony to this community. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus, about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And those who are with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And he said to me, go up, get up, go on to, into Damascus. There you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus and a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. Notice he's a Christian, but he's well spoken of by all the Jews. He came to me and standing near me said, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear all the, uh, to hear an utterance from his mouth for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. See, Paul is quoting Ananias in this very moment, speaking to these crowds, fulfilling what Ananias prophesied. In the quotation of Ananias, he's fulfilling Ananias' prophecy. It gives you chills to think about the historical moment that Paul is in. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance, just like Peter in Acts 10. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord... Did you know that Jesus did that with him in Jerusalem? That, that's where we find that out. There's all kinds of interactions Paul's having with Jesus that we don't really have reports about. There's just a little hint. Oh, by the way, Jesus told me to leave Jerusalem. They're not going to receive your testimony. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, this is the turning point where he's done speaking. He doesn't get to say anything else. They were hearing that a resurrected Messiah was speaking to him. They were hearing that he had a special uh, a conference with the one that the entire Old Testament is pointing to. But as soon as that one says, I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles, that is the end of his opportunity. They listened to him up to this statement and they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. Our racial animus is the core of our confession. Our special identity is what really matters most to us. Not that our special identity was to give birth to Messiah to save the world. We forgot the third thing in the Abrahamic covenant about being a blessing to all the nations. See, these people do not have the heart of their father. They, even though he's God, their creator, they don't know him. And they don't think like him back to that parable of the prodigal. 
And so this causes uh, a riot. It causes a ruckus. And you know what's wrong with ruckuses. Then the plural, in, the, in, in Hebrew, that'd be ruckusim. The plural is I am. Uh, ruckus is bad for Rome. And so the Romans don't like that and they have to shut it down. And so in 29 through, um, well, in, in what follows, I skipped a paragraph. Um, Paul, 22 through 29, the Romans take him to the Mark Antony barracks. They almost flog him, find out from him he's a citizen. You can't flog a Roman citizen. And they set up Paul to address the Sanhedrin since he is, after all, a Roman citizen, uh, which will happen in Acts 23. So his appeal to the crowd turns into a riot. The Romans shut down the riot by bringing Paul into custody. They're about to inquisit him. They're about to test him with pain to see what the truth is and, and torture it out of him. He doesn't let them because he says he's a citizen, which they're going to get in trouble if they, if they do that. And then they set him up, okay, you're going to go uh, make, a, make an appeal to the ruling body uh, over these Jewish people tomorrow. So that's what Paul is set up to do, and it doesn't go well. In 23, 1 through 5, he goes the next day to the Sanhedrin, that's the, the, the elders of both Pharisees and Sadducees, and begins to make his appeal. And it's like the worst speech uh, of Paul's life. Um, he starts off with uh, a confident beginning, God, uh, and, uh, and says, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And that's all he gets to say to them. The, high, the chief priest says, go and slap that man on the mouth. He, uh, he takes the slap and says, um, you're in trouble with God. He said, um, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Um, and because he said, you're violating the law as you're trying to execute the law. And they said, you're not supposed to talk that way to the high priest. He said, I didn't know it was the high priest. Apparently they're not dressed for the occasion. And, um, and so you have in this, the shutdown of his appeal to the Sanhedrin. He doesn't really get to give his message. He sees the way this is going to go, apparently. So seeing that they've got a divided body, Sadducees and Pharisees, the apostle Paul tries a different tack. In verses 6 through 10, he divides the Sanhedrin into another riot. He brings another rumble and gets half of them to appeal for him by appealing to the resurrection. Seeing or perceiving that one group were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out to the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. See, our doctrine that we all agree with from the Old Testament in other words, our scriptures teach the resurrection because our scriptures are messianic and the Messiah must be resurrected. And we expect this is the point. And so he divides the group and gets half of them to be on his side by saying that. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees. The assembly was divided for the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So the, the difference between them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is, is now focal, and they're seeing how Paul fits what the Pharisees tend to believe about the Spirit, about uh, the angels, about revelation from God, about uh, the resurrection from the dead. See, it's almost like the Sadducees, by the things they reject, like resurrection, the Spirit uh, of man, uh, the, the, the angels, perhaps the Spirit of God, just says Spirit. 
It seems like an anti-supernatural bias, like a materialism, like we live with our, in our day. And Paul is now saying, I've got people of the same worldview who don't quite understand who Jesus of Nazareth is, that he fulfills what they are expecting. That seems to be what the Pharisees were. And that's why apparently Paul, the greatest Pharisee of his generation, was the ideal one for God to get hold of on the road to Damascus, to, to, to be the one to go to the Gentiles. It would be someone that fully understood what the Old Testament was expecting and how Jesus Christ fulfills that. So the great dissension uh, develops and the commander is about to, uh, afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and order the troops to go down and take him away from there by force and bring him back in the barracks. And then one of the most important verses that you might overlook in your read through is chapter 23, verse 11, the next verse. Because it's another, notice you had red letters in Paul's appeal in chapter 22 when he's telling the, the men in Jerusalem what Jesus said to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Luke takes of that thread of Jesus' direct statements and you have another prophetic word from Christ. The Lord stood at his side and said, take courage for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness in Rome also. Paul knows, and actually the way he gets to Jerusalem is he was told you're going to suffer. Then you're going to eventually die because you go to Jerusalem. And he says, okay, I'm ready to go die if I have to go to Jerusalem. And, that, and so he did. And now Jesus is with him, just like he told in, the, in the, um, the Great Commission, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He tells him, you're going to go and do this testimony for me of the resurrection in Rome. So Paul did a good job in, in Jerusalem, and now he's headed to Rome, and he knows that, and it's going to be a while before he gets there, and, and this is the convoluted story of Paul getting to Rome. So Jesus reveals that Paul has an appointment in verse 11. In 23, 12 through 15, the Jews in Jerusalem adopt, uh, develop an assassination plot, and these guys are going to go on a really interesting fast, because they're going to be fasting for more than two years and it turns out for a lot longer than that. These guys say this group of assassins, Sicarii, that some say, are going to uh, take a, a blood oath or a vow that they will not taste food until Saul of Tarsus is dead. And, um, and so that plot is foiled by whom? Paul's nephew. It's a really neat story. Paul's sister's son. I have one of those. I have a sister and he ha she has a son. Paul's sister's son hears about this plot on the street and he goes and tells Paul, who says, hey, go tell the battalion commander that's over this barracks. And Lysias, the battalion commander, uh, listens to the boy and takes it in and says, okay, don't tell, anyone about, don't tell anyone else that we know about this. And then he orders up a bunch of troops and they're going to spirit Paul away out of this place where it'll be easy to assassinate him in Jerusalem at the Mark Anthony barracks and haul him out back to Caesarea Maritima on the coast um, of, of the Mediterranean. And that's what they do. They take him out to Caesarea Maritima and Lysias writes a letter to Festus. This is the seat of the Roman procurator for the area for Judea there. And so, you know, you want to have your, you want to have your, uh, your, your state headquarters on the coast in a beautiful, beautiful Mediterranean spot. I think we'd probably agree this would be a good spot to do it. So we go out to Festus's environs and now Paul is dealing with Festus. In chapter 24, see how fast this goes? In chapter 24, Paul, having been spirited away uh, for this travel to um, Caesarea Maritima, um, finds himself under Festus, uh, sorry, Felix, not, Fe not Festus yet, Felix. It's Felix Festus uh, Agrippa. That's FFA, Felix Festus Agrippa. He goes to Felix 
um, from Caesarea and Lysias, the, the battalion commander, has written this letter. And um, in verse 35, uh, Felix is going to say, um, when verse 34, chapter 23, when he'd read it, he asked from what province Paul was, Saul was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So Herod has a palace. Um, Herod the Great built a palace here and named this, this port city he built after, his, after Caesar. And, uh, and, and so there's this, there's this state headquarters that's, a, that's a, like a place you can, you can, a residence. And so Paul is, has some pretty plush uh, um, accommodations, apparently, while he's waiting for his accusers to come over to Caesarea Maritima from Jerusalem and make their case. And Ananias, the high priest, uh, brings a ridiculous charge and just says he's bad. So you have this obsequious introduction that these people will make to the person in charge in verses uh, 2 and 3. Um, we're coming to you, excellent, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing, for we've found this man a real pest <laughs> and, fell, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So that's pretty much his accusation. Paul will die for this eventually, but not here. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along with much violence, took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, which don't amount to much, right? You will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. So there's really a bogus, that's all you got? I mean, that's it? You know, Russian collusion, this is it? This is all you have for Paul? And then Paul gives his defense. The Jews had joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. And when the governor nodded for, uh, for him to speak, when Felix says, okay, now you say what you have to say, Saul of Tarsus, he says, knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact. Now, that's all he says in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, of an aside or a, a, an honorific to Felix. M you know, most noble Felix who have been a blessing to us. You're judging and, you know, you've judged us. So it's interesting. He gets right to the material. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. I've only been here for a week and a half. Neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve. That's what they called us, the way. Okay? You got to be careful with labels. That term today gets used by all kinds of people. You don't want to necessarily go to the disciples of Christ, even though we are disciples of Christ. You don't necessarily want to join the way, because even though we are part of the way, um, even the Chris Christian church, 
Like, be careful there if you're told to do something besides faith in Christ for salvation. What about the church of Christ? I mean, we are the church of Christ, but we're not that church of Christ where they add works to the faith alone gospel. Be careful about the labels, but we were originally in Judea. They called us the way. And, and so he says in verse 14 that we do uh, serve God of our fathers, believing everything that's accordance with the law that's written in the prophets. Now that's really important to the, to the context of the entire New Testament and how we understand the Old Testament. He says, everything I'm doing is expected by the law and the prophets. We serve God according to the way. Let me read it again. This I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Resurrection, by the way, just as you understand, resurrection as a doctrine in the scriptures is not just for those in Christ. It's not just for the Old Testament saints before the baptism of the Spirit. It is for the righteous and the wicked, mankind. We will all go on forever, some to life and some to eternal separation from God. And that's Daniel 12 too. And, and so Paul is no doubt um, describing this righteous and wicked resurrection because of Daniel 12 too, which we'll look at in detail down the road. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men, which is what he meant when he said, I, I have a clean conscience before God, when they slapped him on the mouth um, in chapter 23. So hopefully you could see, okay, he's made his appeal to the men of Jerusalem. He's talked to the Sanhedrin, didn't work out. And now he's gone to the Romans. It's almost like from the, to Israel first and then to the, the Greeks, to the Jew first, then to the Greek, like Romans 1 says. And so now he's with the Roman procurator uh, of Judea, the, the, the person in charge of the region for the Romans, who has to deal with the Jewish problem. The Jewish problem he has to deal with is that they uh, will revolt against the Gentile powers every once in a while. They will cause riots in the streets, and you don't want a ruckus in Rome. If you have a ruckus and you're a Roman procurator, you're in trouble with the higher-ups. You might get relieved of your duty, or, you might, or worse. And so there, there's a problem always dealing with Judea. And so you've got to work with them and these politicians. That's why Pilate's like, you, you guys go figure out what you're going to do. He's trying to maintain his grip on the political situation when he washes his hands of our Savior when Pilate does it. But, but anyway, when Paul makes his defense, I want you to see that he is saying that this that we're preaching is in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. And these people, the Pharisees that are accusing me, they believe in the resurrection from the dead for the righteous and the unrighteous. That's all we're preaching. Okay, so where were we? We were in Daniel. Okay. Um, now, after several years, verse 17, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia, these people that had been following him through his missionary journeys, who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today. 
The only thing I did that, that there was a riot about was I said, I believe in the doctrine of the resurrection, and that's really what the issue is. So Paul's whole appeal, whether to Jews or to Gentiles, is the resurrection. And that's obvious from the story. But I want you to see that running the thread running through this is that he's saying what we are preaching is anticipated by the Old Testament, and the Pharisees agree. It's the context, the theological context that's going on in the um, first century as Paul uh, hits the stage, the world stage with the, the gospel ministry among the Gentiles. When he goes back to the Jews, he says what they already believe, and there's a riot about it. Then he tells the Gentiles who have no idea about it in front of the Jews, and even uses the Jews and said they believe it too. They're witnesses in a way to this doctrine. In verses 22 through 23, Felix says he's going to wait and he kind of puts him off. But all the way through 27, it tells you that Felix, his wife, Drusilla, are going to keep Paul there for two years, trying to nurse a, a bribe out of Paul. They think there's a way they can, they can get money. They can extort him for money and just let this thing go because obviously there's no legitimate charge. Obviously, there's no issue. So, but there's a problem. There's a political problem that if he, they know if they let Paul go, these Jews are going to cause problems, going to be this uproar, and that's going to be loud and messy, and the Romans don't like that, and you don't bother the Romans. And so, and so he's in this sticky situation, but they listen to Paul. They hear the gospel a lot of times. Felix hears uh, the gospel from Paul and Drusilla hear it, and, and Paul preaches uh, to them for two years, and that's a tough thing to have basically two people as your audience as a pastor, and they don't believe for two years. Uh, and what a waste. Don't you want those two years? I want to hear what Paul had to say. Oh, I, I, <laughs> did we get the tapes, Lord? Can we hear that someday? I, I just what did, he, what did he say to them? What a waste. These people don't like, didn't want to hear what he had to say. What, what, a, what, what a waste. God, it wasn't wasted for God, but boy, do I have a holy um, antagonism toward Felix and Drusilla for wasting that amazing opportunity. So, so there is Felix and Drusilla, and they basically pocket vetoed Paul's case. He didn't render a judgment. He just waited. He was a corrupt politician. And history tells us that they called him back to Rome for other corrupt issues and replaced him with Festus. So Felix and Festus. So Festus is coming back in chapter 25, and he's making a tour of the place where he is now, the procurator. He goes to Jerusalem, and guess what they want to talk about when he gets to Jerusalem? You've got a guy in prison there in Caesarea Maritima, and we want him. That we want. And what the, 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 the people in town in Jerusalem want is they want them to come. They want, they want Festus to bring Paul back to Jerusalem so they can kill him with their assassination plot. They've got some hungry, hungry assassins, Right? They're hungry for Paul's blood and they've got to kill him. And so that's the first thing that we read is that they have this appeal. Can you please bring Paul? The leadership in Jerusalem asked Festus to bring Paul so they can ambush him. And Festus says, why don't you, if you want to do a trial, why don't you guys come out to Caesarea Maritima and we'll, we'll let, hear your case there, which is the right and Roman thing to say. And this is Festus' high moment. This is as good as it gets for Festus, who figures out the political situation and uh, the, the real politic of it, and he plays the same game that Felix played. So Paul will appeal to Caesar in his uh, trial before Festus with the same crowd from Jerusalem making their same accusations. In verses 6 through 12, we'll read, after uh, he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea 
On the next day, he took his seat and the tribunal ordered Paul to be brought. So he's been among the Jews in Jerusalem, heard all this earful about Paul, and now he brings Paul in to talk to him. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. And while Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar, but Festus wishing to do, wishing, listen to it, the, the real politic of it, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? See, that's a, that's a, that's a hint. Why don't we go down to Jerusalem and we'll get you a fair trial down there? Well, in Jerusalem, there's poison arrows or whatever. They're going to kill him. They're going to get to him. And, but they, but the, he knows that the Jews, all they want is to just bring Paul to, to Jerusalem and we, you can try him down there. And, and there's this strong push. And so he's got this political problem. And so he says, well, um, I'll do the Jews a favor. That's his attitude. It's just trying to survive uh, in this impossible job of, of being a Gentile ruler over, uh, over the people in Judea with their uh, nationalism, with their identity, with their culture. It's a, it's a nightmare to try to rule there, even if you are the, the fourth beast of, of Daniel's um, visions. <clears throat> and so, uh, you, know, you know, what happens eventually in the intertestamental period, the, the Jews throw off the Roman yoke for a little while. Um, and um, that, I'm sorry, that was before. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting my timeline off. They threw the Greek yoke off with, uh, with Antiochus for a season, but then the Romans crushed them after. So anyway, the, um, the point is that, that these people want their kingdom. They have been told there is a coming kingdom. They're expecting that messianic kingdom, and it's tied to their national identity, as it should be. But somehow they're not connecting to their creator with all that nationalistic focus. And, and there's nothing wrong with that kind of nationalism, except that it's divorced from the creator who has called them as a nation. And uh, so that's, I know that's, that's challenging, but it's, it's a very hard thing to be the procurator over Judea in the first century. So uh, I haven't done anything wrong, Paul says. And then uh, Paul says, when he says, uh, when, when Festus offers for him to go uh, be tried in Jerusalem, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer, have committed anything worthy of death, I did not refuse to die. But if none of these things, those things, is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. And then he says in Greek, Kaisara epikalumai. I appeal to Caesar. That's, that's official technical language that once it's uttered, it's almost like a magic spell in Rome. If you're a Roman citizen and you say that, you get to go talk to daddy. If you're a Roman citizen, you get to go to the Godfather. You're going to Rome. Whether you like it or not, you're going to hear from Caesar or he's going to hear from you. And that's what he does. He says, this is a death sentence for me to go to Jerusalem. But he also knows something else. What else does Paul know? from the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 23, verse 11. He knows that he has a date in Rome to go testify for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an exactly good point for him to jump on the train to Rome. Because if he goes back to Jerusalem, he might well die since there's a plot to assassinate him. And that's what this is all about. So notice that God gave him special revelation. You need to go to Rome. Paul sees the train all aboard. Who wants to go to Rome? He jumps on the train. 
Now, Jesus didn't say, hey, this is your time to get on the train. It just seemed to be the thing to do. And notice it's fulfilling what the Lord Jesus told him again in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. So he, he appeals to Caesar. In chapter 25, verses 13 through 27, you have a consultation. Festus is a Roman. He's not uh, super skilled in the Mosaic law or the Jewish culture. And so he's got to deal with this group of people. He doesn't know him very well. But there is a, a man in his environs that does know these people named King Agrippa. And this is Agrippa II, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, Herod I. And Agrippa is the, um, he was the king of, of the city of Chalcis and eventually became uh, the king of Galilee, a, a, a lower-grade um, ruler over Galilee, the northern portion of Israel. And so he doesn't have rule uh, uh, jurisdiction over Festus, but it's like he's brought in as a consult on this thing. Because think about it, Festus is new to the thing. You've got this this civil war that seems to be brewing in, the, in Jerusalem over this one guy. What do we do about this? What's the, what's the big deal? So Agrippa comes in, and now you have the Romans consulting with the Jews in a way. The Idumeans are not Jews that the Jews receive, but they've adopted Jewish culture. And uh, we think Edomia comes from Edom, and so they're cousins. And so the, the story of the Herods is a big, uh, interesting thing they should be making uh, uh, TV shows about in the, this historical fiction culture we live in where they're telling all the interesting drama. There's a lot of great drama in the story of the Herods, but it gets really confusing on which Herod and, and all that. But this is, Herod Agri this is Agrippa II, who is the great-grandson of Herod. And so he comes to basically consult with, with Festus. So you had Felix, went back to Rome, was replaced by Festus, who is now wondering what to do with uh, Paul. Now, why does he need help? Why does he need a special consultation? Apparently, it's, pro it's a big deal when one of your subjects appeals to Caesar. When you have a man in custody that's a Roman citizen who's supposed to be treated with all the benefits and privileges of Roman citizenship, and he, gets, he says, I'm going to talk to dad. He's going over the head of all the chain between uh, him and Caesar, going straight to Caesar. And that, that's, ooh, do, do you really need to do that? Do you really need to appeal? And think about the, the politics of this. If you're dealing with Roman subjects, you've got to be careful what you say to them. You have to be careful how you treat them. There's a, we can ex examine Roman law and see if you're doing this correctly, because if you don't, I'm going to tell dad. And that's, that's an interesting way that Roman citizenship had, had special privileges. But now, see, uh, uh, Felix is going to say, sorry, Festus is going to say, I don't even know what to say to Caesar about this. We need to figure out what to tell him because I've got to send correspondence with this prisoner that just appealed to Caesar. And Agrippa's conclusion is going to be, you know, we could have done this without an appeal to Caesar. He didn't have to go to Rome. You could have just let him go based on Roman law, except that you appealed to, he appealed to Caesar. So Festus consults with Agrippa and lays it all out before him as kind of a specialist of things Judaica. And then Agrippa, in chapter 26, verse 1, invites the Apostle Paul to speak uh, for him because Agrippa is now giving him an audience. So it's like a, it's like a consult with, a, with another dignitary who's a specialist in these matters. Now what's great about this, let me summarize, is Agrippa says, this fits. Festus says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Agrippa says it fits. 
in verses 24 through 29, Festus versus Agrippa in response, the way Luke tells this courtroom sort of drama, this really does play out like a kind of a a saga of, uh, of appeal and what happens with the miscarriage of justice throughout Paul's dealings with the Romans under the influence of um, the, the zealots that want to kill him in Judea. But Paul gives his defense in 26, 2 through 23, and then Festus will uh, say, Paul, you're crazy. And Agrippa says, Paul, you're about to make me a Christian because I'm, I'm so versed in the Old Testament that what you're saying so fits. And that's, see, that's what you're being told in summary by the way Luke is presenting this, that the resurrection is the expectation of the Old Testament. In verses 30 through 32, to close out chapter 26, Paul's innocent. You, don't, you didn't even need to try him any further is Agrippa's point. All right, let's go through Paul's defense in 26, 2 through 23, kind of as we close down. I've never been through a, a, an opportunity to go through this story and see the drama of it. There's not a lot of geography. It's Judea and Caesarea Maritima. Um, there's a lot of politics, but it's pretty straightforward. The Romans are under pressure from the Judeans who want to kill the Apostle Paul. Agrippa says to Paul in chapter 26, verse 1, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. He said, in regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today. What's the Greek word for defense? Anybody know? He said it in chapter 22 also. It's apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics, and it does not mean I'm sorry. It means this is the uh, explanation so that you'll understand what's going on. It's a defense. Um, especially because you're an expert in all customs and questions concerning the Jews, among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so what does Paul do? Does anybody have any idea what Paul does from memory? Have you done this recently? Paul introduces to Agrippa that I'm glad I'm talking to an expert. And then he tells who he is and where he's from. And it is not my lifestyle and is not my conduct among the Jews, but the doctrine of the resurrection that is the issue in verse uh, four through eight. Let's read it. He says, all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect, sect, sect of our religion, and now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. This is some of the most important language about what Paul thought the Old Testament is saying. Listen to it. I am standing trial for the hope, verse 6, of the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. I am only here because of the resurrection from the dead. That is my whole reason for being accused. Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? That's the whole thing. I am, and notice this is how to be in a world that is opposed to the gospel. You don't want to be guilty of inciting violence. You don't want to be guilty of, of rabble-rousing. You don't want to be guilty of all the things that they can accuse you of. I mean, anybody can throw anything at you they want. In this culture, if you stand up, they throw as much as they can against the wall and see if it'll stick. 
But you don't want to actually end of that to be true. You want it to be that you're being oppressed because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which hangs on the resurrection of the Savior, the historic confirmation by God that the Son had paid for our sins. So I'm on trial for the resurrection. In verses 9 through 11, Paul tells his story, which is the second time he's done it in this saga. I want to see the movie. They need to, really, they need to dramatize this. In verses 9 through 11, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them open, or often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, being furiously enraged at them. I kept putting them, pursuing them even to foreign cities. So he's, he's told this again and again. Look, I was the persecutor of this thing that you're accusing me about today. I was the one that was trying to shut it down. What a powerful testimony that he was such, a, such a, 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 an enemy of the truth that he now stands for the truth. So he can start off with, I was oppressing it. I was opposing it. I was the great persecutor of the church. In verses 12 through 18, what does he appeal to? I met the Savior. And I want you to notice in verses 9 through 11, it's Paul. I was a persecutor of the church before meeting Messiah. In verses 12 through 18, Paul encountered the Messiah. And he, he gives us more revelation, more information about the experience as he tells, as Luke narrates what he says to Agrippa. While, I, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw the way a light, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, he didn't tell us that information when he was telling the story before, but apparently Jesus did say that. And he didn't say it in English. He said it in Aramaic. And we know he said it in Aramaic because Paul just told us that. And then Luke is inspired by the Spirit of God. So it doesn't matter how you translate that in English. What he said was, you're kicking against the, the goes, the, the, the pricks, the way I'm going to direct you. You're fighting what I'm channeling you into. And I said, who are you, Lord? Kurios, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you've seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Oh, what a summary of the gospel from the one who paved it for us, who provided the gospel in Acts 26, 18. Notice that Paul preaches the gospel to Agrippa in the quotation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He just bears witness to what Jesus told him. Again, Paul's story is, I met Jesus. That's my message. He saved me. 
This is the most powerful way to deliver the gospel, and that's why it's given to us three times in the book of Acts as Paul shares the gospel by telling you what happened to him. I was a persecutor of the Messiah, and then I met Messiah. And in verses 19 through 23, he summarizes his ministry consequent as a consequence of meeting the Messiah. So King Agrippa did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first, also Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. He summarizes in verse 20 everything he did on all three missionary journeys since up to the point that he was arrested in Jerusalem. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. I'm just in accordance with the Hebrew scriptures and the people opposing me therefore cannot be. That the Christ was to suffer that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. That is Paul's great appeal before Agrippa. Now, I don't know how to do this presentation of Paul saying the Old Testament insists on resurrection, and that's the whole basis of my, of my appeal. I don't know how to do this without actually going through it in one stop, but we did. We got through it. We got through Paul when he was seized in Jerusalem all the way to his appeal before Agrippa. And notice that the conclusion will be uh, a beautiful thing. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. So that's the Roman guy. His, he doesn't have any Old Testament context, but this message wasn't for him. This message is not the Mars Hill sermon. This is what he says to the, the, to the Jewish um, uh, proselyte, if you will, to the Edomian, who knows the Mosaic law. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth, for the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He knows about John's baptism. He knows about the event that they're saying Jesus was resurrected. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. His whole basis for appeal to Agrippa, and notice he's not defending himself. He's just proclaiming the gospel. Do you believe the prophets? Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you'll persuade me to become a Christian. Yes, I believe the prophets and nothing you're saying differs with them. I'm just a novice in this compared to the great Pharisee of the Pharisees, the teacher of the law. Our Father, we thank you for the promise of resurrection as presented throughout the scriptures, the expectation throughout the Old Testament that we would have a Messiah who himself would be resurrected and bring about the resurrection of at least all those who are called by his name. But in Daniel 12 too, the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, some to eternal bliss and some to eternal judgment. We thank you that Jesus alone fulfills this expectation and makes sense of all that's promised in the scriptures. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.